This is Macro Voices, the free weekly financial podcast targeting professional finance, high net worth individuals, family offices, and other sophisticated investors. Macro Voices is all about the brightest minds in the world of finance and macroeconomics telling it like it is, bullish or bearish, no holds barred. Now, here are your hosts, Eric Townsend and Patrick Serezna. Macro Voices, episode 365, was produced on March 2nd, 2023. I'm Eric Townsend. This episode of Macro Voices was made possible by Respect Energy, a leading European trader of renewable energy and a one-stop shop for all green energy investors. Energy Markets guru and keynote speaker Dr. Anas Alhaji returns as this week's feature interview guest. Anas predicted President Biden's recent announcement that another 23 million barrels of crude oil would be released from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve months before it happened. We'll discuss the SPR and Anas's broader outlook for energy markets in the feature interview. We're also introducing a new show format this week, so please let us know how you like it, either on Twitter or via email. And I'm Patrick Ceresna with the Macro Scoreboard week over week as of the close of Wednesday, March 1st, 2023. The S&P 500 was down 1.1%, closing at 39.56, with all eyes on the testing of the 200-day moving average. We'll have more of that when we discuss it in the postgame. The Nasdaq was down 1.1%, closing at 11,961. The U.S. dollar index down 0.1%, closing at 104.37. The advanced pause along the January highs, but uh, after four days of consolidation with the current rally this morning, uh, we'll be seeing whether or not the U.S. dollar bulls are uh, uh, done or whether or not there's another leg higher coming. When we move to the April WTI crude oil contract, it's up 5.3%, closing at $77.85. After retesting those January and February lows, we're back into the mid to top end of this trade range. It'll be really interesting to see whether or not crude oil can follow through on this. Eric, I'm looking forward to your take when we talk about this in the postgame. When we move to Brent crude oil, uh, up 3.8%, closing at 85.35. Moving on to gold, up 0.2%, closing at 18.45. The reversal came after almost a month of selling. The big question, of course, was this just an oversold bounce or is this reversal going to stick? Copper down 0.7%, closing at 4.16. Very volatile since putting in its January highs, but overall the bulls have been buying dips and it's been able to keep up above $4. So I have a chart on this that we can discuss in the post game. When we move to uranium, uh, down 1.4%, closing at $51. The resistance continues to be along its September and October highs, but overall the uranium chart remains bullish. Trading along those highs, it'll be interesting to see if the uranium bulls finally can break this out to new multi-month highs. Moving on to Bitcoin, down 2.3%, closing at 23,634. The trend of higher highs and higher lows remains uh, since that January breakout. With this uh, pullback in the last week or so, be interesting to see whether the bulls can buy the dip here and continue this trend. The 10-year Treasury yield up 8 basis points, closing at 3.996. We broke those uh, December highs around 390. We're at trading right into that round number of around 4%. And now all eyes turning toward those October highs around four spot three, three. 
The key news to watch will be Friday's ISM Services PMI, next week Fed Chairman Powell's testimony at the Senate Banking Committee, and Wednesday the ADP non-farm employment change. This week's feature interview guest is energy expert Dr. Anas Alhaji. Eric, why did we get Anas back on the show this week? Well, Patrick, the one-year anniversary of the Ukraine invasion seemed like a perfect time to invite Dr. Anas back for a lessons learned on uh, what's happened since the invasion, what it's meant for energy markets, and what he sees ahead. And obviously, the what he sees ahead is his outlook on the market uh, in the wake of China's reopening also seemed very timely. Now that we finally got China reopening, are we finally going to see this market turn around, or is it going to stagnate uh, even longer than it's already? surprised me by stagnating. Anas also correctly predicted the further release of 26 million more barrels from the SPR, so I wanted to get his perspective on that event as well. Well, Eric's interview with Dr. Anas Alhaji is coming up as Macro Voices continues right after this message from our sponsor. If you invest to bring about a world powered by green energy, you should meet Respect Energy, a leading European trader of renewable energy that serves as a one-stop shop for green energy investors in Europe. Respect Energy brings together independent power producers, accredited and institutional investors holding assets in renewables, or undertaking investments in new green energy production, such as wind and solar photovoltaic power plants. More than 600 institutional and accredited investors have already entrusted Respect Energy with the sale of their electricity production, portfolio management, O&M services, EPC, and project development. If you want to invest in green energy in Europe with the help of a trusted partner, contact Respect Energy today and ask for a tailor-made solution. For more information, visit respect.energy. And now, with this week's special guest, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Joining me now is Dr. Anas Alhaji, founder of Energy Outlook Advisors and noted keynote speaker and general expert on energy markets. Anas prepared a slide deck to accompany this week's interview. Listeners, you'll find the download link in your Research Roundup email. If you don't have a Research Roundup email, just go to our homepage, macrovoices.com. Click the red button above Anas's picture that says, Looking for the Downloads. Anas, it's great to have you back. I wanted to, uh, to ask you back because we've just passed the one-year anniversary of the beginning of the uh, Ukraine war with Russia. Let's start with the lessons learned to date from this experience in, with respect to energy markets. What uh, were the surprises? What have we taken away? What have we learned? Thank you very much for having me, Eric. And it's always a pleasure to come back to Macro Voices. We learned several lessons in oil and gas and uh, other lessons in even macroeconomy and uh, related issues uh, like in international trade. But when it comes to oil, one of the main results of what we've seen in a year of conflict is the change in the direction of international trade in energy sources. And specifically, we are talking here about oil, gas, and coal. Just to give you an example on this change, India's oil imports from Russia in December 2021 were only 1% of the total imports 
the total oil imports of India. So it was 1% in December 2021. In December 2022, it jumped to 21%. And right now, it is about 24%, uh, simply because we have this diversion where oil starts going to Asia instead of Europe. For China, and by the way, and this is a good lesson for listeners right now, because this is one of the mo most important outcomes of this war is we have to be very careful with the data. And I will emphasize this point one more time. And the reason why, because whenever we get data from India or China or Saudi Arabia or any other country, these are the official data. But the market is somewhere else because we have a massive black market on one side and some countries like China are importing the Russian oil through a third party. So they show that they are importing uh, oil, uh, let's say, from Malaysia or Indonesia or other country, but really that is Russian oil. So if you look at the official Chinese data, we see a jump in oil imports until almost June or July, and then it dropped. And people think, well, China is not importing that much from Russia, while China basically is importing massive amount from the black market and another amount coming from third countries. So we've seen this change in direction while we've seen African and Middle Eastern countries uh, exporting to Europe to replace the Russian crude. So the first result is the change in direction of international trade and energy sources that applies to natural gas and it applies to coal too. The second result is the filling of the Chinese strategic reserves. China used most of its most of its strategic reserves in 2021 to prevent prices from reaching $100. And they were hoping that because of the seasonality that global oil demand will decline in the first quarter of 2022. And with that, prices will decline. And with that, they can refill. And Putin goes to uh, Ukraine. Prices go through the roof, and the Chinese got stuck. But they got lucky. Lucky on two fronts. First, they were able to get the cheap Russian crude. And the second, they have the lockdowns. So from one side, the demand declined substantially. On the other, they were able to get the cheap crude they were dreaming of. And they were able to refill their commercial inventories and their strategic petroleum reserves. Until the end of the year, of last year, 2022, they had 1.1 billion barrels of reserves. That's commercial and SPR, underground and above ground. And although the commercial inventories declined in recent months, the level of inventories, of total inventories in China today is higher than that of the United States, despite the fact that the US consumption is higher than that of China by five to six million barrels a day. So the first result is change in direction of trade. The second result is the filling of the Chinese strategic reserves. And as you recall from our previous interview, the implications of the Chinese filling up and reusing that are huge. Quick question, Anas. When you say the filling, do you mean it is now full and there's no more room, or do you mean they're still filling it? The total capacity in China to fill that strategic and commercial is about 1.4 billion. Right now, they have about 1 to 1.1 billion. So they still have about uh, 300 million space to fill in. So they still have space. 
But right now, their inventories are going down because of the reopening, because of the massive growth in the transportation sector. So their, their inventories are drawing down, but they still have a very large, uh, large inventories. The third result, which is a very important result, is the black market in oil has become the largest in the history of the oil industry. And yes, there is a lot of things to talk about when we talk about black market in oil, but there is a hidden dimension that is going to cause a lot of problem to everyone in this industry. And it's going to have, you and I are going to have problems every time we talk or every time you have a show. And the reason why, because quality of the data in oil and gas started deteriorating since 2017 and it got worse over time. But now because we have this black market, the data is really bad. And OPEC is going to have problems. Any CEO of any oil company is going to have problems. Traders are going to have some serious problems. And the media basically can run away with any story because there no one have a definitive answer or no one has the real data. So anyone can come up with any data in, in this atmosphere that we are in. So one of the implications of the large black market is the deterioration of the data quality. Another result and lesson we learned from the crisis during the last year is the reduction of the role of OPEC+. And we've seen that with the release of the SPR in the United States. And we've seen that with the use of the SPR in China. And now we have a new dimension to this, which is very interesting. The market power of OPEC almost diminished because all the focus right now is not on the production, on the on the spare capacity, on the production spare capacity of OPEC. It is on the spare capacity of refiners around the world. Those with large spare capacity, they can import a lot of Russian oil, refine it, and then send the products back to Europe. And that's legal, by the way. So who is influencing the market right now? countries with large spare capacity of refining, and that's China and India. So they literally pulled the rug from under OPEC at this stage because of this. And the final big story out of the year of conflict is that Russia, if you go back to 2019, Russia was supposed to increase its production capacity and move toward 11.5 million barrels a day of production. And what we know right now is Russia was unable to return to pre-COVID production. It's got stuck. So that Russian oil that's supposed to be in the market is no longer there, and it may not be there for years to come. As for gas, that we learned several political and economic lessons when it comes to energy. One of them that the American share revolution proved to have huge political dimensions and the American or the, the administrations, whether the Trump administration or the Biden administration, exploited that to, to the maximum. There was no way on earth that President Trump could have uh, reimposed the sanctions on Iran or imposed sanctions on Venezuela in 2018 without the share revolution. 
there was no way Europe could stand in front of Putin today without the share revolution because of all the LNG and all the oil that we supplied them with. So all of a sudden, the share revolution is, is, is way bigger than what we even dreamt of. And it, it is literally reaching the four corners. The impact is reaching the four corners of the world because of that political dimension of it. One of the main results and what we learned from this conflict is the European shift from dependence on Russian gas to dependence on US LNG. And if you really want to choose the most important event, if you ask me just to choose one event, one result out of this one year, I will tell you it's this one, that the shift from dependence on Russia to dependence on US LNG. This is the main outcome of this conflict. And this dependence is not going to vanish quickly, even if we end up with peace, even if Russia withdrew its troops and sanctions end, that LNG is literally engraved in stone in Europe right now. So that's really the most important event. And it transformed the global energy system probably for the next two, three decades. And the final one, when it comes to natural gas, that, and this might apply to the whole energy world, not only to natural gas, that when it comes to Europe, United States and Canada, basically the West in general, those countries are idealistic when it comes to the environment, when it comes to climate change, welfare, and human rights. But they will do it as long as they are comfortable, as long as their welfare is intact. But once their economies are affected, once their welfare is intact, then uh, the environment, climate change, human rights are out of the window. And this is really one of the main lessons we learned from this experience. Just look at Germany. They went back to coal. They literally threw away all the climate change rhetoric they've been talking about. They've been telling Africa and Asia, stop using coal. That's it. Uh, COP26 was about stop or ending the coal. Uh, and now they are going back to that. We've seen the German police basically going, literally removing a whole village from a top of a hill simply because there is an old coal mine they need to reopen there. Human rights basically literally went out of the window. So that was one of the main lessons too. And in general, this is, does not apply only to, applies to everything uh, in energy. Uh, we have two points. The first point is that the same countries that they opposed subsidies to fossil fuel, the same countries that were telling other countries not to give subsidies to fossil fuel, they reneged on that, and they are giving subsidies in billions of dollars to their populations to use fossil fuel. Under the guise of, uh, we are going to reduce the burden, prices are too high, etc. But they literally sacrificed all the climate change rhetoric by giving those subsidies to their own people. And the final lesson, and that's in general, not only related to energy, but to everything, is sanctions do not work. Embargoes do not work. Price ceilings or price caps do not work. And the evidence abound regardless of the political rhetoric and regardless of what the media is saying. The fact is that 10 rounds of sanctions 
and nothing happened on the ground tells you that sanctions failed. The, the fact that the whole rhetoric about price ceiling does not make sense and this obsession with the idea of price ceiling or price cap, they said price caps reduced Russian revenues. Well, the price cap was imposed on December 5th. It takes for, for oil to be sold and the money is collected and then you pay taxes and it becomes government revenues. It takes about three to six months at least to become revenues. And all of a sudden, according to uh, Janet Yellen, this happened a week later. Just a joke. Anas, before we move into the slide deck, I want to ask you about what the heck has happened with respect to the supply of oil and what to me is a very unexpected and sudden abundance of oil in 2023. Now, in the end of 2022, there was a narrative a lot of people agreed with. It's not just me. We had Goldman Sachs and several other very you know, well-known commentators and analysts saying, look, we've got a real problem here, which is we've got massive drawdowns of commercial inventory. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is drawing down the strategic petroleum reserve. And who knows exactly when they're going to stop, but it can't last forever. Eventually, it'll run out. So this is unsustainable. If you were to stop drawing down the strategic petroleum reserve, which was being drawn down at a rate of a million barrels per day and sometimes higher, well, that's the entire spare capacity of Saudi Arabia. So you would you would use up all of the remaining spare capacity if you didn't have that. And what people were predicting was at some point, they're going to stop drawing down the SPR, and we're going to have an outright crisis that's going to send prices to the moon because there's suddenly just not going to be enough oil to meet demand. And boy, put your seatbelt on, because if China starts to reopen on top of everything else, then it's going to be an absolute shit show. Well, the crazy thing on us is a lot of parts of that story happened. They did stop drawing down the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Now, it's been announced that they're going to draw some more, but they haven't started drawing that next 26 million barrels or whatever yet. They did stop drawing it down in the middle of December, end of December sometime. And you'd think, okay, here's the big moment that everybody was waiting for. And what happens? We get nine weeks in a row of big inventory builds, not drawdowns. And it seems to me that, okay, this is a huge surprise, but wait a minute. The market actually bottomed in price in the middle of December, which suggests that maybe not everybody knew this was coming, but somebody did because the market knew to discount the, that there was going to be some oil coming back into the market. Sure caught me by surprise. Is this a result of China winding down its refilling of its SPR? Or what's going on here that, that caused this sudden string of nine, I think it is, in a row, uh, big builds on inventory? And are they going to continue? The group that you talked about at the beginning of your statements, I'm glad that I wasn't in that group and the evidence is our last episode because we talked about this, as you recall, and in that I was in the group that says that we do have plenty of oil and the SPR, stopping the SPR release is not going to have impact and China is going to have a limited impact, etc. I was among this group and I'm glad that uh, I was I was right on this. For those and for your listeners who are interested in this, there are two things they can go back to we don't have enough time to discuss. First of all, there is a 30-minute video on the SPR. They can 
go and check it out. And it is on uh, my Twitter account, explaining all of this in details. And the second one is we have our, our, our own uh, 2023 oil market outlook, and we removed the paywall. So it is available to ev for everyone to read. It's in our uh, Substack. And in it, basically, we discussed all those points too. And our view basically was that ending the SPR releases is not going to have an impact. And China is going to have a limited impact in the fir first half of the year, simply because the rebound is only in transportation. But what we've been talking about all along is that within a certain range, there is a substitution between the SPR and the commercial inventories. Because the idea was, by the way, the SPR is a subsidy to the oil majors. It's the taxpayer money being used to subsidize the oil majors because the oil majors, if there is no SPR, then commercial storage would be way, way higher and they have to pay it out of their own money. So what happened is we knew all along that there is this substitution. We just we did not know the range. And now we are learning where the range is. So as the SPR was drained, all of a sudden companies felt, look, I have a problem here. So the commercial inventory start going up as a substitution to minimize the risk of disruption because the cost to the companies is very high. And to give you an example, there is a possibility that the Biden administration cannot release any more sour crude, although we have like 200 something million barrels in the caverns, probably because of technical issues. I don't know exactly, but it seems that the administration is willing to use more more light sweet, but they don't want to touch this, the, the, the medium sour. Why? The market need medium sour. So are there problems there? I hope there will be investigation in the Congress where they can subpoena all those guys of the SPR. And we know the, the, the real story about the integrity of the caverns and the quality of the crude and all that stuff. Because where people were talking about the drawdown of the inventories, the stories could be way bigger than that. So I am not surprised that inventories went up simply because of that substitution. I am not surprised that prices did not go up because of China, because we knew all along that the Chinese economy is very weak and the rebound is going to be mostly in the transportation sector. In addition, we have other issues that people did not pay attention to. As you know, everyone was predicting that the reopening is going to lead to a massive growth in demand to compensate for the last two years. This did not happen. And the reason why it did not happen, simply because of high oil prices on one, on one hand and the high value of the dollar, because oil is priced in dollar. On the other side, the projected growth in oil demand in the oil-producing countries themselves did not materialize, which was a surprise to me because I was one of those people who were producing higher demand in those countries and it did not happen, which means that they became more conservative than ever and the government did not spend that much money to stimulate the economy. And all of a sudden now we look at the numbers and they are way lower than what we predicted. So we have lower demand all over the place. Of course, lower demand because of lower growth Demand continued to grow, and it's way higher than before. It just the growth was way lower. And the final point was most people predicted that Russian crude 
whether production or exports would decline substantially. And I lost a number of followers on Twitter because I kept saying, no, it's not going to happen. And, and people thought I was supporting Putin because I said that. And the fact is, we already have enough evidence from sanctions around the world for 120 years that sanctions do not work. We already know how the Russians basically borrowed a page from the Iranian book, and they transferred that to a thousand books. So we knew that. Uh, so if you add all of those together, you can see where we have increased in supply, lower demand than, than predicted, and we ended up with the current situation that we are in. The only reason why we are in the 80s today, because OPEC, led by Saudi Arabia, cut production more than expected. And that's why we are in the 80s. Otherwise, we would have been in the 70s. Now, they stopped actually drawing down the SPR in mid to late December. And then we had this series of builds in commercial inventory. And I thought, okay, we don't need to be tapping you know, strategic reserves because we're seeing a recovery now in commercial inventory. I was caught totally by surprise when even in the face of this string of builds, which it seems like, okay, that the message there is we don't need to be drawing the SPR down. Then the Biden administration, after that series of builds, announces that they're going to draw down another 26 million barrels. Sounds like a great mystery, but you actually predicted that long before it was announced. What did you see there and how did you know it was coming? Well, we know that there are congressional requirements for releasing the SPR. And that's in that video, that 30-minute video that I mentioned. It's uh, illustrated in details with pictures and, and all these things. So we knew that they have to withdraw 26 million. But the question in our mind was, can the Biden administration go back and tell them, well, we already counted that as part of the 180? Yes, they can. But why did they not do it? They can't just tell them that, unless there is some uh, really legal issues they don't want to deal with. But they can go back and tell them, look, we already sold this early. The other one is, yes, the Congress basically forced the Biden administration to sell the 26 million. But the Biden administration can decide on the timing and can decide on the crude quality. And they decided that it has to be light sweet. I don't think we need light sweet. That's not what the market needs. Light sweet, that means this is going to be exported. We are not going to use it within the United States. And the timing basically. It depends on how you think about it. Either you think about it that they are smart and they are doing it just before the summer driving season because it's April to June and before OPEC meeting, OPEC plus meeting in June. But that's sending the wrong message to OPEC anyway. So you can criticize that view anyway by saying, well, now OPEC can react to it and, and just cut production. So we don't know why the Biden administration chose this time and shows this, this uh, crude quality. But it's not related to the uh, Biden administration. It is related to the congressional requirements. Let's take a look at the first graph in the slide deck on page one, which is natural gas prices. Now, I think it's important to, to point out that the orange, which is European net gas, and the green, which is U.S. net gas, they're actually on different scales. You've kind of leveled them to show the patterns there. But European net gas is always much more expensive than U.S. net gas. Uh, the big spike or, or peak that you see in the center of the chart on the orange was uh, the the highest demand, you know, in the wake of the uh, invasion in Ukraine and so forth. 
that was in in Europe. That's where the prices really went crazy. And you, you see that in sympathy, they've both come off quite a bit since then. But a lot of people were predicting that what was going to happen is because it became necessary to export so much U.S. gas to Europe, people thought those prices were, would converge. A- actually, the, you know, U.S. prices would go up and European prices would come down as we arbitrage that market. It seems like they didn't. Is that because of transportation costs or what's going on here? Well, the conversion is not going to happen probably for several years, uh, simply because there are two separate markets. The LNG market is not international per se yet. Uh, we still need more more time. And one of the reasons why, because we have the long-term contracts that are oil indexed, not related to Henry Hub. So that's number one. Number two is one of the main lessons that we learned uh, through this year of conflict that many countries that thought they are better off going to the spot market and we have to create this futures market for LNG and this, 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 they found out that moving from long-term contracts to spot market was a big mistake, not only because of high prices, because of the security of supplies. So we have many, we've seen many countries going back to Qatar and Australia and uh, Trinidad and uh, uh, other places and signing those long-term contracts again although their plan was not to do so. So that's part of the fact that why they did not converge. Uh, We have other problems, by the way, because people are wondering why prices collapsed quickly like this. And of course, there are uh, several reasons for this. One of them is we have a decline in demand in Europe because of high prices, lower income, and governments switching to coal, and people are switching to wood, etc. But at the same time, We've seen a mild winter that contributed to lower prices. In the U.S., we uh, lost uh, two BCF a day uh, from uh, Freeport because of the fire. So that reduced the LNG supplies worldwide, but it pushed back two BCF to the U.S. market. At the same time, we have a new development that very few people paid attention to that if you look at the numbers, we've seen the rate count in shale plays going up throughout the year. And if you recall, if you go back to just the the November and October, just before the election, and uh, that's in 2020, when people realized that Trump might lose the election, what the Trump administration did is they gave thousands of leases to oil companies, oil and gas companies. And most of them are on federal land. And it just happened that the western flank of the Permian in New Mexico is mostly federal land. So companies moved in, and this area is very rich. But what we are finding out is with the increase in the rig count and the activities in the area, all of a sudden we found out that oil wells are producing massive amount of condensates, NGLs, and natural gas. So shale plays, basically, uh, the oil wells produced massive amount of gas that was not accounted for. People were thinking, we'll get more oil, and they got more gas. And especially in the fourth quarter of the year, we got a lot of gas from the western side of the Permian. So there there were a lot of gas in the United States while Freeport was still closed. 
With Freeport open now, let's talk about what the internationalization of liquefied natural gas looks like. Where are we in the story and and what lays ahead? Because it seems to me that right after the Russian invasion, President Biden said to the world, "Okay, look, we got Europe's back. Don't worry about it. We're going to send you plenty of natural gas. And then a whole bunch of people in the oil and gas industry raised their hand and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's impossible. Freeport offline is a major, major impediment. And even if Freeport wasn't offline, we don't have anything close to enough natural gas ships because they're very specialized ships for transporting liquefied natural gas. There's nowhere close to enough of them to meet Europe's supply. This talk that President Biden is making about U.S. natural gas supplying Europe is crazy, never going to happen. Well, wait a minute. It seems like it did happen. How did it happen? And, you know, how could we be that far off in terms of understanding what was possible logistically? And now with Freeport reopened, uh, how much more is possible logistically? Is this market really becoming internationalized? No. uh, And uh, President Biden's statement became true simply because of the mild winter and the use of coal in Europe. Without the use of coal, Without the reduction in welfare and all the instructions to conserve energy in Europe, none, none of this would have happened. We would have seen some major crisis in Europe, and, and you are right. We are not going to find enough ships, basically, to ship the LNG, even without the incidents of the Freeport. So, really, the weather played a role here, and the policies of the Europeans. And by the way, the policies of the Europeans, if you ask anyone in the energy market, whether on the left or, or the right, and tell them what happened, they will tell you this is crazy. There is no way this will happen. To tell them that, look, Germany is going to renege on nuclear and they will extend the life of, their, of those plants, they will say no. Tell them Germany is going to go back to coal, they, they said no way. They say Sweden is going to go back to oil, they will say no way. Uh, say that those countries are going to impose restrictions where they will limit the a number of showers and the, the heat and the thermostat and this stuff, all of this happened. So the general welfare of Europe declined substantially in a way where no one could have predicted. The return to coal, no one predicted this. So what helped them basically is the mild winter and all those policies together. And high prices forced people to go back to wood. That was not even in the picture. So the original theme that you talked about is absolutely correct, that the issue is still there. We have the coming winter. We don't know how severe it's going to be, but Europe is not out of the wood yet. Moving on to page two, where we talk about Russian natural gas exports. Help me understand what happened with Russian gas on us, because we know in the case of oil, okay, Europe imposes a bunch of sanctions and embargoes and so forth. They just sold the oil to somebody else because oil is really easy to move around and uh, there's a black market and so forth. Natural gas is much, much harder. It's, it's harder to physically transport it if there's no pipeline. There's not enough natural gas ships. Did they end up just flaring off their natural gas or were they able to sell it to somebody else? What happened no, okay. to... Uh, let, let me just explain what that chart shows, basically. That chart shows that there was a time when Europe was dependent on piped Russian gas by about 40%. And that declined in January to 7%, which is the lowest in history. And when we talk about sanctions, forget about what the Western media is saying, because the Western media and, and Western politicians 
are making kind of a big deal out of, we imposed sanctions and we did this and we did this and we did this. But look at the facts on the ground. The facts on the ground is Putin has been trying since 2014 to diversify exports. That's why he built all, all those pipelines to to China. That's why he has all those deals, etc. So when we talk about dependence of the EU on Russia, it really came from both sides. It's not one-sided. It's not like the EU does not want to. The EU wanted the gas. It was the Russians who said no. Why? Because there are several reasons. When LNG was a $70, the Russian gas, the long-term contracts, basically was sold at like $9. If Russia can successfully break that contract, they can divert that and sell the gas in the spot market at a way higher price or convert it to LNG and make more money. Well, hang on. Who's buying it from Russia in the spot market if there's no pipeline anyplace else besides Europe? Where does it, get, where does it go? Well, we have pipelines going to, to China, so they, they increased the shipping to China significantly. And at the same time, they diverted a lot of gas to, uh, to the LNG. So their LNG basically skyrocketed. And with LNG, it was Europe and everyone else who is buying it. But the idea here is this came from both sides, and Putin wanted really to shift the gas import somewhere else, and the companies wanted because they make more money in the spot market, way more money. Honest, let's move ahead to page five where we look at the price charts for Brent and uh, where we are so far in 2023. I, I want to compare the, the outlook that we've discussed in our previous interviews and talk a little bit more about what you see ahead in the future because the view that I've had has been, look, we're probably going to have a, a global recession that's going to depress demand and so forth. But it has seemed to me that we've had so much damage to the industry during the pandemic that was not cured afterwards because there's been such a reduction of investment in oil and gas as a result of pressure from ESG. And now we've got these outfits like Share Action that are lobbying bankers to stop financing any new oil and gas projects anywhere. Uh, they're you know sabotaging, frankly, the energy market supposedly in the name of energy transition, although I, I don't think they're achieving their, their own stated goals. It seemed to me like we were in a situation where the global economy cannot return to its pre-pandemic growth trajectory because there just isn't enough energy supply in order to, to accommodate that. And we seem to have almost run out of OPEC spare capacity. Uh, I thought in some of our past interviews, you agreed that eventually that's where we were headed. I thought it was going to happen a little sooner than it has. Right now, we're seeing, if anything, prices uh, are languishing down here, and we're not seeing a resumption, even with China's reopening, uh, of higher prices. Uh, am I just early, or do I have a misunderstanding of the overall picture? Generally speaking, when we look at uh, chart uh, at figure five, there is something stunning about it. And what you see here is you see that massive increase in prices in 2022, that's the maroon line. And then if you look at the bottom, that's the black one, that's the 2020. And if you look at them carefully, you see they are, they are almost the mirror image of each other, which is striking. That's number one. Number two, if you look at current prices and that's the red line, it goes almost in the middle in between the two. And if you look at the chart, that we have in the 2023 outlook, 
where we collected all the prices from all those who matter, it goes through the middle. So the minimum, the minimum of 2021 and the height of 2022 basically determine all the prices of price forecast for 2023. So th that that's stunning in various ways. So is the market really uh, adjusting to the volatility in this case? So if you look at the red line, it's almost between the two the two extremes here. Uh, that one. Number two, in our outlook, the way we see it is the first half of the year is going to be difficult no matter what. But when it comes to the second half, and especially to the fourth quarter, the, the theory that you mentioned about not enough spare capacity, we don't have enough oil, etc., that's where things are going to play. So we got to see, we will see it in the fourth quarter, assuming there is no recession in 2023. The issue that we have here, and this is a serious issue, OPEC believes that oil demand will increase by 2 million barrels a day if you compare the fourth quarter of 2023 to the fourth quarter of 2022, 2 million. And OPEC believes that 1 million will come from OPEC and 1 million will come from non-OPEC. The problem is the Saudis emphasized in the last three weeks, emphasized so many times, and it's all over the news, whether on Bloomberg or Waiters, and there is an interview for the uh, Saudi energy minister on this, saying our plan is to keep the production cut to the end of the year. But OPEC itself, in its report, it says they need to add one, one million. So that shows you either the forecasts are wrong or the plan, uh, this is just talking the market, job owning the market, and by the fourth quarter, they have to increase production no matter what. China, China's impact is going to be toward the end of the year. The production uh, or the spare capacity impact is going to show up at the end of the year and beginning of 2024. So yes, the theory is still valid. We have problem with timing. And we got to see how the timing is going to work. So for the rest of 2023, we should expect the first half, really uh, no exciting action. If there's going to be higher oil prices, they come in the second half, especially the fourth quarter. What do you see for 2024? 2024 is, is the same story where it's more bullish than even 2022. The issue in 2024 becomes we don't have enough oil. Oil prices will increase. And the idea that oil prices will reach 200, 300, 400, like some people think, is a complete nonsense. Why? Because we are going to see demand declines and demand destruction. Demand declines are different from demand destruction. Destruction means no return. That's it. It's gone. Demand decline, it's mostly a decline because of income and higher prices. If income increases, then we have a recovery. If prices decline, we have a recovery. So we are going to see demand decline and, de and demand destruction as a result of those high prices. But there is no reason at that time for prices to decline for an extended period of time. What we are seeing right now is, unlike what people think, this is the reality. The reality is we are seeing more spending, uh, EMP spending in oil and gas than what everyone expected. And if you look at 2022, the growth in spending in 2022 is the highest in history. Let me repeat that again. The, the growth and in investment in EMP in oil and gas in 2022 
is the highest in the history of the oil industry. And we might get another surprise later on, which means that we can deal with the lack of investment. It seems that the industry is adjusting, but everyone is shy of talking about it because of ESG and all that climate change stuff. What we have a problem with is the investment problem can be solved if people are serious about it. But there is one issue that is going to hit us really hard. And that brings us to the issue of energy crisis that we talked about in the previous show. The problem is not the lack of investment. The main problem we are going to experience in the future is that the failure of a green policies by default is going to increase the demand for oil and gas and coal. And no one is ready for that. It's not incorporated in any outlook. So it's really the failure of some of the green policies that's going to change the future. It's not the lack of investment. One of the green policies that is rapidly gaining traction is this idea of phasing out fossil fuels before phasing in viable replacements. And from Leonardo DiCaprio to Share Action to Just Stop Oil, what you're seeing is people who are frustrated that we're still addicted to fossil fuels, and they're right about that frustration, taking what I think is a completely counterproductive approach to saying we've got to get rid of oil. And they're not focusing on we need to accelerate the pace of building clean energy replacements, which they should be focusing on. They're focusing on we're going to lobby and threaten and petition bankers that if they continue to fund or finance any kind of oil or gas project in any way, we're going to shame them. We're going to cancel them. We're going to do you know whatever we, it is that we can do. And we're going to have all kinds of activism to try to force a stop to financing of any oil and gas projects. Um, I think this is a, a crazy uh, turn of events, but it seems to be happening. What do you think the impact is going to be? Eric, if you bring DiCaprio on your show, I can assure you, I can assure you, he will not be able to answer a single question. He will not be able to answer a single question. Let, let me give you one of the issues that all those guys do not know about. And it's crazy when you find out they don't know about. For the United States, Europe, India, China, South Korea, and Japan. So that's 80% of the world oil demand. For all of those countries, if they double, triple, quadruple, or pick up any multifold increase in renewable energy, has almost zero impact on oil demand. Almost zero impact. In the United States, the percentage of oil used in power generation out of the total oil demand is less than half point percent percentage. So it's not even 1%. So even if the quadruple renewable energy has no impact on oil. Now, if you want to talk about electric vehicles, yes, electric vehicles are going to use electricity instead of gasoline. Here is the problem that people are not paying attention to. Saudi Arabia is adopting a policy of oil to materials, oil to petrochemicals. What that means is they say, okay, I know my oil demand is going to decline in the future because every Western consultant is telling me about it, but I do have plenty of oil and I don't know what to do with it. So what I'm going to do is this. You want to go for electric vehicles? Go for it. But I know one thing. Those electric vehicles are too heavy because the battery is too heavy. 
And one way companies are working to reduce the weight of the car is to use materials that are light. And those materials come from oil and gas. End of story. So yes, you don't want to use that in the tank of the car, but you are going to use it in the other part of the car. To what extent do you think that these efforts to lobby bankers, major banks, to stop financing oil and gas projects? I mean, it's obviously they're, they're having some effect with that, but you also said that 2022 was the biggest spending year ever. Is it a matter of private equity providing that financing so the banks are not involved? Or, or you know, no, how, banks, how do... ban- banks were involved, but not uh, some, some of the banks basically were shying away. But remember that high prices enabled companies to finance themselves. I think based on a recent survey, about 26% of the companies in the United States will finance uh, their operations on their own because they built a massive amount of cash they are going to use for their spending. Uh, So they don't need banks or private equity or anything else. About, uh, I think, almost 40% said they are going to rely on private equity and family offices to finance. So there is, uh, in a sense, the pie for the banks is getting smaller and smaller. But the banks, well, we already know about a couple of banks, basically, they created subsidiaries with different names to work on oil and gas so they won't look bad in front of the greens. To what extent will oil prices be affected if the uh, Leonardo DiCaprios of the world continue to not spend their time on macro voices, but instead uh, tell all of their followers to try to shame the banks into not financing any more oil and gas projects? You know, uh, uh, this is funny because we get very nasty tweets from the head of the UN calling those who invest in oil and gas crazy. I mean, I'm not uh, exaggerating this. You can see the tweets. You just said that those who invest in oil and gas are crazy. You know, we believe them if he does not fly around the world in private jets, just like uh, DiCaprio or or others. When we complained about Greta Thunberg basically going to, to help this village that the German government or the German police tried to move those people so they can develop the coal mine, we said, okay, how did she arrive to Germany? And we're making fun of the point that she has to use some sort of transportation to get there. And then her supporters basically said, oh, she used public transportation. She used train. Yeah, it was electric train, but where the electricity came from. So they really have no argument. And and they know that when Germany went back to coal, when BP decided to change its views of the future because they wanted to cut uh, oil and gas production by 40%, and now they cut that, and now they are talking about, okay, we need to find replacements first before we cut fossil fuel. Everyone is retreating, but they are retreating under the color of green. Honest, we're not going to have time to get to all of the charts in the deck, but listeners, I do encourage you to peruse them. It's really some excellent content. But Honest, what I want to talk to you about before I let you go is even more excellent content. Actually, all of these charts in the deck came from your Substack, and your Substack has become quite the talk of the town recently in the oil industry. You've always been a very popular guy on Twitter, but the Substack is really taking off, and that is at Anas Alhaji. 
EOA, that's for Energy Outlook Advisors.substack.com. Tell us a little bit more about what's going on there. Why did you launch this particular uh, Substack venture? Uh, what can we expect from it? And how can people uh, sign up? Well, it's still free. You don't have a paywall yet, but I'm sure it's coming. What's the plan there? Well, we, we, we started the paywall uh, recently, and I just released those charts uh, without the paywall simply because they are important. We have two tough substacks, not only one. We have one that's designed for companies and high net worth individuals, which you looked at. And we have uh, one uh, small one for $420 a year for almost a dollar a day uh, substack. That's the daily. So we have the daily and we have the weekly. The weekly is the one that's relatively expensive. I can assure you that the price of that substack is only one-tenth of what's equal in the market. But for the daily, the daily is very cheap. It's $420 a year, uh, almost a dollar, 15 cents a day. And uh, in it, basically, we have chart of the day. We have the main news of the day. And then we have the news of the day or the main story of the day and the news of the day. So we discuss the news. We comment on all the news and on the charts. Very beneficial. People are really excited about it. For the uh, main one, the weekly you just mentioned, we really discuss some hard issues. So we discussed, for example, historically, we discussed the the pricing in dollar and yuan and all that stuff. And we debunked all the theories about what's going on with Saudi Arabia and Iraq. We uh, talk about Algeria. We always have something about LNG and natural gas, uh, about Europe, about Russia, all the deep issues that people talk about, all the details, all the numbers, all the charts, and the 10 charts that, uh, uh, well, 14 charts, basically, that I shared with you and they are going to see uh, testify for that. Patrick Serezna, Nick Galarnik, and I will be back as Macro Voices continues right here at macrovoices.com. Now back to your hosts, Eric Townsend and Patrick Serezna. Eric, it was great to have Dr. Anas Alhaji back on the show. Now joining us in the post game is Nick Galarnik. Now let's get to that chart deck. Listeners, you're going to find the download link for the post-game chart deck in your research roundup email. If you don't have a research roundup email, it means you're not yet registered at macrovoices.com. Just go to our homepage, macrovoices.com, and click on the red button over on NASA's picture saying, looking for the downloads. All right, let's dive into that deck. Eric, we're going to start with crude oil here. Uh, how did those EIA inventory numbers come in? EIA inventory printed a build of 1.2 million barrels, which is a significant build, but compared to the last eight weeks, which were just huge builds, it was uh, benign in comparison. Cushing, Oklahoma, building 307,000 barrels. Gasoline drawing down 874,000 barrels. Distillates building 179,000 barrels. U.S. production unchanged at 12.3 million barrels. Tape action was up after a smaller-than-expected build, but really not that much immediately after inventory. However, early Thursday morning, we are seeing further strength to getting back above $78. The real test, though, is up at 80 spot 38, which is the 100-day moving average on the continuation WTI contract. So I'm not placing any bets until we see a daily close over 100 spot 38, but it looks like we're maybe going to make another run at it, at least the way things are looking this morning. 
Yeah, so on page two, we have that chart of crude oil. And uh, the one thing I wanted to really highlight is just how range-bound crude oil has been in the last three months. Going all the way back, actually, to mid-November, you can define the vast majority of the price action to that narrow range between $74 to $82. And I have the high-volume nodes identified there, which the top end of those ranges are right here at the $78 level. This uh, continues to be the kind of overall trend of the crude oil market, which has been, it's been a bit of big bad bear market in crude pulling back for much of the year. And then this uh, extended sideways consolidation. One of the key things for me to watch is when will we finally see a pattern of accumulation emerge that is setting in a new trend and that uh, has not yet emerged. So uh, moving on here to equities, Nick, on page three, we have that SPX chart. What level are you watching? So as I speak right now, the SPX is uh, trading a spot of 39.50 approximately. Looking out to the March 17th OPEX, which is a monthly OPEX a few weeks away, the expected move is about 130 points in other direction. So the upside from here would be around 40, 70, 40, 80 or so. The downside would be somewhere around 38, 10 or so, 3,800, which is also support, a heavy support right now. Uh, above us, we have resistance at 4,000, which is a key level. We've been hanging around there for the past uh, week or so. And then beyond that, we have heavy resistance at 4,120. But looking at these levels, uh, Eric, I'd be interested in hearing your perspective on the SPX right now. As I've said several times in the last few weeks, the action at the 200-day moving average should be the tell for what comes next. Just on Wednesday, we got the first daily close below the 200-day moving average, although it was just barely below it. We're now uh, actually a few points below that and hovering right about the 100-day moving average at 39.36, which is about 10 points below the 200-day moving average. This is uh, pretty much the make or break point. We're testing where support should be. If we get a reversal here, it would suggest that we've uh, retested what used to be resistance as support and maybe set for a leg higher. If this breaks down substantially from here, well, maybe it means that this bear market rally is finally over and we're headed for the long-awaited move to new lower lows in this bear market. We'll see what the next few days bring, but I do think in the next few days we'll get a a solid indication of one way or the other what's going to happen next. Yeah, Eric, on page four, I have that 200-day moving average on there that you were talking about. And we're literally on nice edge here. After several weeks of consistent selling where the S&P 500 is now close to 300 S&P points off of its highs, this is actually a very typical place where a dip should be bought if the bulls are in control of this market. And so as we test this zone right here, it's a, a make it or break a moment. If uh, for whatever reason, the bull can't turn this off of this key level and we see a breakdown down towards that uh, 3900 and then 3800 like Nick was talking about then uh, any failed rallies will really put in motion potential breakdowns in the trend and then substantial selling could be a uh, f- following the uh, key for here is I'm going to still give the bulls the benefit of the doubt that they're going to be able to bounce this market here but this is a uh, knife's edge and we're going to see how this plays out let's move on here Nick to the QQQ and look at these NASDAQ. Uh, What levels are you watching going into the OPEX? The spot right now on QQQ is approximately 288 pre-market. And the expected move for the March 17th OPEX, again, the monthly OPEX, is approximately 13 points up or down from 
current spot. So upside would be to 305 or so from previous close of yesterday, uh, but from the current level, it would be around 303. And the downside would be to 279 as, as of yesterday's close down to 277 as of current spot rate right now. So looking at that box, we see uh, the green box in the chart. That's the range of expected values over the next few weeks. Keep in mind that we have heavy support at 280. And uh, above us, we have broken below that support level of 296 or so. And we have a heavy area of resistance now at 310. And obviously, that level of 296 becomes now resistance as well. Nick, I agree with you. The uh, NASDAQ, though, the interesting observation is on a relative strength basis, it actually continues to hold up better than the S&P. This entire little sequence of selling has uh, has still seen the NASDAQ pretty well supported on a relative basis. And that's an interesting thing to me. If uh, One of the things I would have thought if we were moving to a, a, a more ominous moment in the markets that the sector rotation into defensives and out of these kind of high beta names would have been more evident, and that at least up till this moment has not yet materialized. Moving on to uh, page six, so we have that VIX chart. And what's interesting is, is that uh, while we did get down into those uh, high teens under the 20 level, overall, it really was just noise. Over, uh, there's a bigger consolidation here, and we have neither seen uh, any uh, spikes in uh, volatility premiums nor uh, any breakdown. Uh, what do you make of this consolidation? Yeah, it's been very interesting. Again, you know, I attribute that to the uh, advent of zero DTE options uh, every day of the week, uh, taking away from the longer term volatility purchasing or activity rather. So, you know, the VIX is predicated on the 30 DTE option activity on SPX, and we're seeing less of that now in favor of shorter term duration uh, options. The way I kind of view that is that, you know, if you're hedging in the market, instead of spending, you know, 20 bucks on a, on a hedge, you know, for a month out, you might spend, for example, you know, 50 cents or 80 cents per day for the next month instead, right? But regardless, looking at the VIX right now, spot is 21 or so. So expected move each day is about uh, 1.3, 1.4% or so. And um, the upside would be to 25. Again, I mentioned this previously that if we break above 25, we're probably going to see a spike higher to around 30, 35, as we've seen numerous times in the past year. But right now, we don't we haven't really see much volatility uh, intraday. So I don't really see any reason for that to be the case. It could change very fast, but uh, downside would be to, to 18 or so. Now, moving on to the US dollar on page seven, Eric, has anything changed in your thinking here? Well, we tested the January 6th high of 105 and a half, rejecting it so far. Maybe that's the top of a new consolidation range. Looks like maybe we could be setting up for that. We'll see what happens. Yeah, Eric, the interesting thing for me, we went and tested that January high around 105 and a half, consolidated here for a week. This morning, we have uh, the dollar once again trying to strengthen towards the top in this range. Uh, that strength is coming from that US dollar yen. The euro is still relatively weak. Whether the dollar manages to uh, break to a higher high here and continue this trend is one of the bigger macro stories to keep watching. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not uh, this continues. Let's move on to gold on page eight. Uh, Eric, what are you thinking of this breakout? 
Nice $40 bounce here off of uh, $18.12 all the way up to $18.52. But I think it's just a reaction to the dollar index pausing for breath and at least for now rejecting resistance at 105 and a half. My bet is that this is not over yet to the downside. There's still several technical levels below the market layered between $1,800 and $1,780. And uh, I have resting limit orders on all of them, frankly. I, I think that this maybe it could be overall Ready. Maybe the bounce that we've just seen is the beginning of a recovery, but I really don't think that's the case unless the dollar index is topped out, and I kind of doubt that that's the case. But I do think 1780 to 1795 is going to be the sweet spot for where the bottom should come in. And of course, that is assuming that we're not going to see the dollar move to new higher highs above 116. In that case, we'd really be in trouble. And the other noteworthy level is the 61.8 Fib retracement down at 1750. A dip down to that level wouldn't surprise me and wouldn't even concern me. And Numora just had a research note out in the last day or so calling for a 50 basis point hike in March at the next FOMC meeting. If that happens, it might just be the impetus to cause at least a temporary spike down to that 1753 level. So I've got resting limit orders down there too. Uh, I am looking at all of these levels as buy the dip opportunities. Uh, I don't think that uh, we're going to see rates hiking forever. Uh, the Fed will succeed eventually at breaking something, and when they do, rates will come back down. Gold will go back up. So it's a question of how far the dip goes. Gold is a famously famously volatile market. So all the way down to the 61.8 Fib retracement before uh, turning back up makes perfect sense. So down to 17.53, entirely possible. I think 17.80 is likely. 17.53 would only be if, uh, if we get some kind of impetus to push us there. Yeah, Eric, the part that I'm obviously uh, observing is that gold was incredibly oversold on a short-term basis and was uh, a reaction, even a, a reaction towards 1900 would be par for the course. The The bigger question, is uh, there a more meaningful short-term tradable low in on gold? And the jury's out on that for me. Uh, I still think that correlation to the uh, inverse correlation to the dollar remains uh, something that's been working very well. And so the next move in the Dixie is going to be pretty important important for the next uh, these uh, moves in gold. For me, my levels are also just uh, below this 1800 level. Some in that 1750 to 1800 pocket will be a point of high interest as, as we move forward. Uh, nonetheless, I want to move on to page nine here and where we have the chart of copper. And uh, uh, what we saw was the high of copper came in in January, just uh, uh, north of 430. And uh, we've been more or less consolidating uh, since then for about you know, five, six weeks. And we've had uh, several attempts for copper to bullishly re-break out, and that just simply hasn't stuck yet. One of the key things for me will remain is whether they can keep copper north of $4 and whether or not we can finally see some of these previous highs being broken and, uh, and that trend of a potential move to 450 get underway. And so it'll be interesting to see. The last thing I wanted to highlight was on um, page 10, I have the, uh, that chart of the US 10 
10-year Treasury yield. And we were uh, all our eyes were on that uh, December-January high that was near uh, uh, the 390 level. And uh, that's now def- decisively been broken. We're tr- uh, right now trading right at that round number of 4%. But uh, with this kind of a breakout, the real question is, are we destined to see a retest of those October-November highs in that 425 to 435 zone? And uh, clearly, bonds are weak right here. And the question is, is that uh, maybe contributing to some of the equity weakness that we've been seeing? Folks, if you enjoy Patrick's chart decks, you can get them every single day of the week with a free trial of Big Picture Trading. The details are on the last pages of the slide deck or just go to bigpicturetrading.com. This episode of Macro Voices was made possible by Respect Energy, a leading European trader of renewable energy and a one-stop shop for all green energy investors. Patrick, tell them what they can expect to find in this week's Research Roundup. Well, in this week's research roundup, you're going to find the transcript for today's interview, as well as a link to the chart book, which is discussed here in the post game, and a link to a number of articles that we found interesting. You're going to find this and so much more in this week's research roundup. Well, that does it for this week's episode. We appreciate all the feedback and support we get from our listeners and are always looking for suggestions on how we can make this program even better. For those of our listeners that write or blog about the markets and would like to share that content with our listeners, send us an email at researchroundup at macrovoices.com, and we will consider it for our weekly distributions. If you have not already, follow our main Twitter account, at macrovoices, for all the most recent updates and releases. You can also follow Eric on Twitter, at Eric S. Townsend, that is Eric spelled with a K, and follow Patrick, at Patrick Serezna. On behalf of Eric Townsend, Patrick Serezna, and myself, thanks for listening, and see you all next week. That concludes this edition of Macro Voices. Be sure to tune in each week to hear feature interviews with the brightest minds in finance and macroeconomics. Macro Voices is made possible by sponsorship from BigPictureTrading.com, the Internet's premier source of online education for traders. Please visit BigPictureTrading.com for more information. Please register your free account at MacroVoices.com. Once registered, you'll receive our free weekly research roundup email containing links to supporting documents from our featured guests and the very best free financial content our volunteer research team could find on the internet each week. You'll also gain access to our free listener discussion forums and research library. And the more registered users we have, the more we'll be able to recruit high-profile feature interview guests for future programs. So please register your free account today at macrovoices.com if you haven't already. You can subscribe to Macro Voices on iTunes to have Macro Voices automatically delivered to your mobile device each week free of charge. You can email questions for the program to mailbag at macrovoices.com and we'll answer your questions on the air from time to time in our mailbag segment. Macro Voices is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Macro Voices should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Macro Voices are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. 
Macro Voices, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Patrick Ceresna, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Macro Voices. Macro Voices is made possible by sponsorship from BigPictureTrading.com and by funding from Fourth Turning Capital Management, LLC. For more information, visit MacroVoices.com.